want to start with a poem about blind men and an elephant by John Godfrey Sachs, written in the 19th century. It was six men of Indostan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, said he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, said he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no longer had begun about the beast to grope. Then, seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his, his scope, I see, said he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. This poem is based on an ancient Hindu parable about the uncertainty of knowledge, about the lack of certainty, lack of complete authority of how people see different perspectives of the same thing. And uh, John Sachs took it and made it specifically about the divine, made it about God. And I would say this picture, this poem, gives us probably the best understanding that the Western world has when it comes to religion, that at best, people have different perspectives of the same universal reality that nobody depicts or nobody fully comprehends. Uh, this today, as we enter our series again on barriers to belief, our conversation today is around this topic and our title for it is Exclusivity and Tolerance. It's around the issue of Christianity's claim to being the exclusive religion, that Jesus is the one way to God. It has different types of questions, four questions, in fact, that we'll cover today uh, that come to mind for me. So number one, doesn't the Christian religion exclude people by nature? Number two, there are thousands of gods in the world. Why should I think that the Christian God is the right one? Number three, people generally choose their religion based on their upbringing. 
You might be a Christian now, but if you were born somewhere else, wouldn't you probably be Muslim or Sikh or atheist and so on? Number four, religions are generally helpful for teaching people good morals. If I can learn good morals elsewhere, why would I be a Christian? These four questions are similar to the poem of the blind man in the elephant. It's the claim to how is it possible that you think you have the exclusive grasp of what is true in the world? It's a conversation that we want to tackle today. It's a conversation that perhaps has not been tackled enough. You might even call it the elephant in the room. To that end, we are going to go to John chapter 14 to discover what Jesus has to say on this topic of exclusivity and tolerance. So if you have a Bible or a device, turn with me to John chapter 14. And I will start at verse 1. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, his closest friends. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In many ways, I could consider this entire message an extended meditation on that sixth verse. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I like to think of this in other language besides Jesus being the way as we just hone in on that word first, is that Jesus is kind of like being life's roadmap, that he offers the pathway, the direction, that if you don't know where to go, your goal is to imitate Jesus. You can follow Jesus even without knowing the end destination, and he is still the one with all the directions. He is life's roadmap. Now, what does that mean in the context of our broader conversation? I like to think of it as a large rope where we are just taking the single strand of a conversation on exclusivity and tolerance. So under the strand of exclusivity and tolerance, and specifically as I think we talk about the way under the road of tolerance, it comes to the first question, the one we already talked about. Doesn't the Christian religion exclude people by nature? So yes, you might want to follow Jesus, this roadmap, but isn't it Christianity? Isn't the pathway one of exclusion? I think of the stories of people, not even just stories, the pictures, what's actually happened, of people showing up with posters at events saying, God hates you. Is that not the fruit of the way of Jesus? Or how Christians have used the banner of Jesus, the cross, to murder, to go to war. I think in the 8th century, Charlemagne, the emperor, the ruler in kind of Western Europe, who went to the Saxons in modern-day Germany and basically said, convert or die. It's a quote from the law that he put in place. If any one of the race of the Saxons, that is modern-day Germany, hereafter concealed among them shall have wished to hide himself unbaptized, and shall have scorned to come to baptism, and shall have wished to remain a pagan, let him be punished by death. 
and later on in 782 in the village or town of Verdun, 4,500 Saxons were beheaded because they were not willing to convert. Is that not the way of Jesus? Well, we have two stories of the way of Jesus modeled just beforehand in terms of what it looks like when you encounter those who disagree with you in chapter 13, just before the verses that we've already read. So let me start with the story of Peter, chapter 13, verse 36. He says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. You will follow afterward though. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter, the one called Dwayne Johnson, pardon me, the one called The Rock, on whom Jesus will build his church. Jesus fully knows he's about to, in the next 24 hours, reject him three times, that he will abandon him in his hour of need. And yet he also comments on how Peter will follow him afterwards. That in the face of this rejection, this anticipated rejection, this known rejection, Jesus still welcomes him. Or earlier in the chapter, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, when he serves them in the role that only a slave would do. He does this, and there's this note in verse 2 that he does it, chapter 13, verse 2, that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, that is Jesus. Jesus knows, and we know this from later on in the story, that Judas is about to betray him, and he still washes his feet. The way of Jesus is to reject, sorry, not to reject. The way of Jesus is to love even those who reject him. And to me, this is actually the issue with tolerance. I have no issue with tolerance itself. It's not that I think it's bad, it's just that I think it's nowhere near enough. We're satisfied with tolerating people, barely acknowledging their existence, when the way of Jesus is whether someone will ultimately choose to follow him or not, he welcomes them and says, come, follow me. He loves and he serves. The way of Jesus is not just to tolerate people. The way of Jesus is to love people. I honestly believe in this conversation that is the biggest obstacle, that we have not been good at loving people. I think of some of my neighbors. I think of Eric and Aaron, who are people who would not consider themselves to be Christians, who had a little bit of uncertainty, caution, wariness when they heard that we were Christians moving into the neighborhood. But since then, they have become some of our best friends. We were over there uh, for dinner the other day, and we are having conversations, deep conversations. We're talking about like other things, just kind of shooting the breeze, but also going into conversations about pain from past experiences in the church. We're talking about uh, in youth ministry, what we're doing to deal with shame, to walk in vulnerability and transparency. We're talking about sex and how we want to create space for people to be able to share their struggles, all these sorts of things. And there's just this like agreement, or there's like this conversation like, wow, that's really cool. And we're able to have this deep conversation about faith to talk about our beliefs, all these sort of things are mixed together. I honestly think the main obstacle many times is just that we don't know how to love people who think differently than us, that we don't know how to engage with different ideas. Uh, Eric actually calls this religious fragility, 
that we are unable to hold in tension someone's different beliefs without them crashing and crumbling upon our own. That to me is the main issue. Now to be clear, I am not just interested in some sort of wishy-washy, uh, say whatever will make you have a good reputation. In that conversation, I said these words, by the way, I have a radically conservative sexual ethic. And Eric actually is like, oh, you have what? Like, he paused me as if I didn't mean to say that. I was like, no, I have a radically conservative sexual ethic. I didn't want to beat around the bush. I didn't want to act as if I was more progressive than I am. I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, and it, that's the place for sex. Believe those types of things. Uh, and, and Eric said, and I will not forget this, at least you have the wherewithal to say it. I really, once again, do not miss this. Think, I really think that the main obstacle is we do not know how to have conversations with people who think differently than us. And that is what the voice of tolerance cries out for. Now that's the how, that's the way, but what about the what? Jesus doesn't just say that he is the way, he says that he's the way and the truth. He says that there's something about him that all of reality is defined by. This to me comes against the next two questions that we've talked about. So the first one, there are thousands of gods in the world. Why should I think that the Christian God is the right one? Isn't it quite convenient that your God just so happens to be right in contrast to the thousands of others that humans around the world over centuries, over millennia have believed in? And then secondly, people generally choose their religion based on their upbringing. You might be a Christian now, but if you were born somewhere else, wouldn't you probably be a Muslim or a Sikh or atheist or something like that? And statistically, it's true. The best indicator of your belief is your heritage. It's the family of origin. That is where you see your best statistical indication of belief. I think both of these are variations on the Hindu elephant parable. We are blind men looking at the elephant, trying to see which is best, and the arrogance to be able to say, I'm a blind man, but I'm still able to understand what an entire elephant is, that to me is a conversation that is coming up. We might only see part of the picture. We need all pictures to be able to see the whole truth. Here are the two critiques I think there are to that metaphor. Critique number one, you are still a blind man or woman if you think that you are able to see the fact that other people are blind men who cannot see the whole truth. In other words, it is a very secular, Western, affluent belief to say that there's a relativistic, your cultural context determines what you believe. Throughout human history, that has not been a primary conversation. In more Eastern cultures, that is not a primary conversation. It is a new entrance into the picture of what is true onto the human scene to say that each cultural context comes up with their own beliefs. The blind men parable and the belief that humans can only, based on their context, believe what their family of origin believes is quite recent. That is also a blind man in the parable. The second critique, and I think the bigger one, the more important one for context, there's still an elephant to be found. In fact, we as the observers in the parable still know that there's an elephant. Somehow, someone knows what an elephant actually is. So the goal, and I think what the parable tells us, is to be humble, is to not try and be arrogant or prideful in your beliefs, and I think that is a very important word. But I still think the goal is to look for a very comprehensive picture of truth. This is something that I think Christianity, and Jesus in particular, is exceptionally good at. In 
providing comprehensive pictures of truth. And I know you might be uncertain right now, but let me show you what I mean. Um, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, what does this idea of truth mean? Well, I think right now there's two different visions of truth, and we'll call them the Ben Shapiro truth and the Oprah Winfrey truth. Ben Shapiro truth, facts don't care about your feelings. Oprah Winfrey truth, speak your truth. On the one hand, you have the desire to have the concrete, rational, objective, universal, across-the-board type of truth. And I think that's a good desire. On the other hand, you have the desire to have truth be something that's based on your personal story, that it can't just be something abstract. As humans, you contribute something to the story of truth. It has to be personal. It has to be story-based. I also think there's something good about that type of truth, too. I think both of them are insufficient, and I think Jesus is both of them at the same time. He says that he is the truth, that across the board, all truth, universally, there's a concrete, tangible source of truth, but it's in the person of Jesus. Both the concrete and the person come together in Jesus. It's a comprehensive picture of the human quest for truth. G.K. Chesterton says that this is actually what led him to faith. Not that particular moment, but Christianity's ability to gather different things. He talks about how, actually for him, it was the different complaints that people could put against Christianity. You could say Christians are way too pessimistic, that they believe that humans are awful, sinful beings, way too pessimistic. You turn the page in a book, and the problem with Christians is that they're actually way too optimistic, that they think they need to have hope in a fairy land to come, that they aren't willing to deal with the difficulties of life. He goes through other lists, talks about how Christians care too much about the life to come, um, but also, and this is kind of more modernized version of it, uh, Christians care too much about the sacredness of life now. So there's some frustrations in terms of Christians' beliefs on euthanasia and abortion. Uh, Christians are people who can't agree on anything. They always think different things, but Christians are also sheep who can't think for themselves. The Bible is full of countless contradictions. It never says the same thing, but the Bible is also way too rigid and binary and black and white. The Christians aren't willing to engage the real issues, but also Christians are way too political. And the list goes on. There's more of them. Chesterton looked at this and said, this is incredible. Either Christianity is the most wicked creation in human history, perhaps supernaturally, miraculously evil, or maybe it's true. Maybe it offers a comprehensive picture that is able to bring so much together and yet also critique cultures universally across the board. Maybe that comprehensive nature is why it's been able to last for millennia and currently stands, again, as the largest faith in the world through all of the technological changes, political developments, continues to stand in that place and is continuing to, tr to go towards that place even as we in the West feel like the church is struggling. It's comprehensive. Now, what does this mean for inclusivity and exclusivity in this conversation? Well, Jesus, uh, he says in verse 2, a very inclusive statement, chapter 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, lots is happening. The Father is not a disgruntled strata member who's telling the kids to stay off his lawn. He is welcoming and saying, look at all the rooms that are here. 
Jesus also says in verse 6 that no one comes to the Father except through him. It's a tension of being both inclusive and exclusive. I think this tension, this comprehensive picture is what we're trying to find out. What it offers the most comprehensive picture, the way that we can address this conversation universally. And the story of the secular West goes something along these lines. Here's a quote by Alan Wolf about how we, we believe we have just become more and more tolerant and inclusive. Once upon a time, it is said, such societies were ruled by privileged elites. Governing circles were restricted to those of the correct gender, breeding, education, and social exclusiveness. All of this changes as a result of those multiple forces usually identified by the term democracy. First the middle classes, then working men, then women, then racial minorities, and we might add recently sexual and gender, other gender minorities as well. All won not only economic rights, but political and social rights as well. This is the story that we become more and more inclusive. I don't think it's the full picture. The full picture includes other types of exclusion too. What do we do? We push people into different camps depending on whether or not you are pro-choice or pro-life. There's a line drawn in the sand. Depending on your socioeconomic status, we literally build our cities according to those lines to push certain uh, poorer individuals into poorer neighborhoods. We do this generationally. We shoot lobs across, across generations of saying younger generations are lazy and entitled or older generations are uh, quote-unquote Karens or out of touch. We love to draw the line. I think we do this uh, as well in ways of ignoring people that we don't really want to talk to. We avoid eye contact. We turn our body posture. We name call. We gossip. We're actually quite good at, at exclusion. And it's not just about rooting those things out. Those things generally are quite bad. But we also know there's a form of exclusion that's really important. Think of the response in a world of tolerance to situations of abuse the response uh, to situations of pedophilia, to racism. There is a need to exclude and outlaw certain practices and habits from the world. The question is really just, where do you draw the line? Again, do you draw the line according to your beliefs around something like the unborn, your, view, your views on women, your views on politics, the political party you vote for, your views on vaccinations and masks, your, your economic status, your character? What, where do you draw the line? Here's where the story of Jesus draws the line. Who should be excluded according to the story of Jesus? everyone. Who should be included? Everyone. Some pretty classic verses. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are worthy. All are separate. But also 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. To me, I look at this, and as I explored this topic, it just made me marvel and wonder in awe at Jesus. The one who is able to include all, to welcome and invite all, 
by recognition of universal sin. The story of Jesus and the way of the church and of Christianity is to do this, is to say that all are sinful, but all are welcome. This is, yeah, the radically exclusive way of Jesus that is unbelievably inclusive. And the claim is that this is the path to life. So Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I think uh, in what I just talked about, of that comprehensive picture, that's probably more of a critique of the Oprah Winfrey type of truth, of just wanting to speak your own truth, but wanting to recognize there is something important about finding something universal and comprehensive. If I could now, I'd like to critique that more Ben Shapiro type of truth, that facts don't care about your feelings type of truth, to look for just something that's objective and rational. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And he's talking about going to the Father's house. You know, homes, if, they're, if they are healthy, are the place that you want to go when you want rest. I love working at Central Heights. I love being out with friends. I love camping. I love going on vacations. But there is something so nice about coming home. The picture here is one of coming home. Of Jesus going to prepare it so that we can come home. Now, what does this have to do with the Ben Shapiro truth? What does this have to do with that final question that we've asked, this one? Religions are generally helpful for teaching people good morals. If I can learn morals elsewhere, why would I be a Christian? If we're just talking about some sort of objective truth, you might want to follow the way of Jesus. You might want to agree with some of the lines that are drawn with the way that Jesus depicts it but you still might not end up choosing Jesus. And yeah, honestly, it works. There's a reason that is there's been movements of God as people encounter Jesus. What happens is prisons are ended up being emptied. People learn how to be uh, more faithful in marriages and loving and kind and compassionate. People learn things like financial stewardship. This happens because the way of Jesus is the way of life. I think we've built an entire society that tries to take those ideals by taking Jesus out of the picture. In the language of Mark Sayers, we want the kingdom without the king. You can follow these ideals, but you're going to miss the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who does things that are humanly impossible out of our imagination. You can follow these ideals, these morals, but you're not going to be aware of the recognition, the importance of the recognition of sin and the ultimate judgment that the Father has to deal with all wickedness and evil to finally make the world right. You can follow these ideals, but you might miss the most important part of the story, which is the resurrection of the dead. The life comes not just through the way of Jesus. The life comes through Jesus himself. This leads me to the relatively unpopular conclusion that for every person in human history, Jesus is the best option. Life is only found in him and in him alone. So 
So yeah, there's specific things that we could point to in terms of practical habits. There's recognizing the deep love that God has for you. There's recognizing the sin that we have and the importance of confessing sin. There's recognizing the importance of including others. I might even challenge us simply to reach out and have a conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus. You don't have to do much, like you don't have to push anything just to try and befriend someone who doesn't know Jesus, to try and open up that type of respect and love. But ultimately, if this is not done in the person and the life and the Jesus, of Jesus himself, it's nothing. So I want to close by reading the Apostles' Creed. If you believe in Jesus, this might be a way to reaffirm your faith. If you do not believe in Jesus, this is the claim to life, the belief that we hold to as Christians. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.